Take a Bible and find 1 Samuel 21. I'll just read the chorus that we just sang together. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. That's a, a refrain, a song, a chorus that would have been, could have been helpful to David in the episode that we're just a short tonight. 1 Samuel 21, we're going to read the passage here in just a minute. Just a short couple of verses, verse 10 through verse 15. Uh, last week, we looked at chapter 21 and chapter 22. We looked at everything around this passage, and we just sort of skipped it. We're coming back to look at it tonight, so we're going to read it in just a moment. How many of you remember the television show Unsolved Mysteries? Remember this TV show? came out in 1987. It started as a mini-series. It wasn't going to be a full-fledged thing. It was just going to be a few little activity and cold cases that had never been solved. And the mini-series was so popular, in 1988, they turned it into a full-fledged series. The host was Alan Stack. And uh, that's kind of like the perfect face for Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know that you could do better than Alan Stack. And if if you remember the show, the premise, you know, is pretty simple. We're going to tell you a story about something strange that happened, and it's unsolved. We don't know the answer. We don't know what really happened. We don't know where this person really was. We don't know who the killer was or who the perpetrator was. Everything is sort of left uh, open-ended at the end of the show. It ran for 10 years. Uh, on network TV, and then they bumped it over to Lifetime and Spike TV. And if you're just sitting here tonight thinking, I love that show, you can go home and get on YouTube, and old episodes are on there, and you can watch old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries uh, if you need your 80s fix of ghost stories. Um, If you remember the show, what drew you to the show, the appeal of the show, is also what made you eventually probably give up on the show. Like, the curious part, the interesting part is that it's unsolved. But you can really only watch so many of those before you say, okay, I need some resolution. Like, I need to know how this ended. Can you give me a little update? Or can you, you know, give me the leading theory? Or just, we need some sort of closure when we think about stories like they profile on, on Unsolved Mysteries. We want answers. We want things to be nice and neat and in their box. We like that in our movies. We like it in our TV shows. And every now and then you see a movie and maybe it gets a bunch of awards where they leave the ending sort of open and all the strings are not tied together and the critics talk about how brilliant the movie is and normal people like you and me say, that was terrible. That was the worst ending ever. Or maybe you get involved in a a TV series and you watch a TV series year after year after year And then the the show is finally going off the air and you think, okay, last episode, they're going to wrap it all up and put a bow on the top. And you get through with that last episode and you think, you're just leaving me hanging. Like, we, we instinctively want some kind of closure and we like solved mysteries. Uh, Tonight, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but our passage is a little bit of an unsolved mystery. We're going to look at it, we're going to talk about it, and in the end, I'm just going to say to you, here's the way I lean on this story, but it's just kind of one of those strange stories. And ultimately, I'm going to come back and say to you, 
I don't think that's an accident of whoever wrote this book. I don't think it's the Holy Spirit forgot to inspire them to write the conclusion of the story. I think that's actually intentional, and we'll talk about why uh, later tonight. It's interesting when you read books about the life of David, how they treat this particular passage. Uh, I've quoted Eugene Peterson a lot. He skips the story, says almost nothing at all about this incident. Max Licato, uh, Max Licato, if you've ever read one of his books, he has something to say about everything. And when you come to this story, he gives it a page and a half. That's all he gives it. And I know it's a short paragraph, but just a page and a half. Chuck Swindoll gives it a page and a half. Robert Bergen wrote a commentary that I've referenced throughout this study. He gives it two paragraphs. And when you read these very short accounts of this story, no one seems to agree on what's happening. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Do we scold David or do we applaud David? Do we say, David, that was not a very good moment in your life? Or do we say, David, that was brilliant? I want to be just like you when I grow up. That's the unsolved mystery we're going to wrestle with. Here's a quote from Alan Redpath. He says this, Here was David, chosen to be king, destined to be master over great lands and wealth, but living in exile and begging bread. Anointed by the Spirit of God was David, but running for his life from his enemies and destitute of all his friends. So often, the providences of God seem to run completely counter to his promises, but only that he may test our faith. Only that he may ultimately accomplish his purpose for our lives in a way that he could never do if the path were always smooth. It is when the problems and the difficulties seem to be overwhelming that the man of God or the woman of God learns some lessons that he or she could never learn otherwise. Here we go. 1 Samuel 21. Let's read these verses beginning in verse 10. It says, David rose and he fled that day from Saul. Remember, Saul has made at this point in the story at least eight attempts on David's life. He's running for his life. Last week we talked about chapter 22. That's when all the rabble comes to support David and be with David and, and follow David. That hasn't happened yet. So he rose, he fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. And he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? End of story. What a strange, strange story. Let's jump in. David's excursion to Gath was motivated by and marked by 
fear. Fear is all over this episode, this time in David's life. Quickly, I'll just show you a map that gives you some idea. David has been around Gibeah, Ramah, Jebus, which is Jerusalem. Uh, last week we talked about Nob, uh, or in recent weeks we talked about Nob. Um, Moab is down on the bottom right in chapter 22. He's going to run down to Moab and uh, eventually come back to Judah. But right now he's in Gath, which is in Philistine territory. So he's out of Israel. He is in Philistia. Saul is trying to kill him. Uh, Saul is trying to kill people close to David. And David's decision is, I'm going to leave the country and I'm going to go to enemy territory. You remember, he killed Goliath. And where was Goliath from? Gath. Mark Dawson told me that was the final Jeopardy question a few weeks ago. And nobody got it. Nobody knew. Where is Goliath from? He's from Gath. David ends up in Philistine territory. He subjects himself to the king, and he's looking for refuge. He's looking for asylum. He's looking for protection. And it's, it's strange to even think that David went there in the first place. Why would he think that the killer of Goliath would be welcomed in Gath? He killed the great Philistine champion, and now he's going to their territory looking for refuge and looking for asylum. The only thing I can surmise is that David thought, if I go there, perhaps Achish will think the enemy of my enemy is really my friend. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Maybe he thinks Saul and David are on the outs. Saul is the sitting king. He's my enemy. So if David is on the outs with my enemy, maybe we can triangulate and there can be some sort of friendship here. It didn't work. He didn't stay in Gath. Because what did the people say when David showed up? The men of Gath are afraid of David. And it's fascinating what they say to the king when David rolls into town. They say to the king, Achish, that man is the king. They don't think Saul's the king. They know better than David knows at this moment that God has promised to make him the king. They say, why is the king of Israel coming to Philistia? And oh, by the way, did you forget how dangerous this man is? This guy, I know this is, you know, West Texas paraphrase. This guy's a killer. You remember the song they sing in Israel? Saul has killed thousands. David has killed tens of thousands. Do you remember what he did to Goliath when he put the rock right between his eyes and he chopped his head off with Goliath's sword? They're terrified of David. Maybe they think he's a spy. Maybe they think he's going to lead some sort of invasion, like he's the the Trojan horse that's going to get in and unlock the gate, and here comes Israel. But they're terrified of David. So the men of Gath are afraid of David, and David is afraid of Achish. You see that in verse 12. David took these words to heart. He hears what the people are saying to Achish. He took these words to heart, and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So what does he do? He says, I have one play here, and my play is to pretend to be crazy. So I'm going to go over to the wall, to the gate, and I'm going to scribble on it. Wouldn't you like to know what he drew? What he wrote? It was convincing, whatever it was. And he's scribbling on it, and he's drooling on himself. 
And he's acting like a madman. And the king is convinced. He says, behold, you see, the man is mad. Why did you bring him to me? Don't I have enough crazy people? Do you feel like that in your life sometimes? Don't I have enough crazy people in my life right now? I don't need one more. Get this guy out of here. I just want you to think for a minute. Have you ever been around someone that was really crazy? And I don't, I don't mean this to be funny. Because when I ask that question, you think, oh yeah, my aunt, she's crazy. I'm not talking about your crazy aunt that you're going to see at Thanksgiving or your crazy cousin or like this is not picture cousin Eddie rolling up in the RV or anything like that. I'm talking about if you've ever been around someone who was genuinely mentally unstable. Tiffany's here. She could give us all kinds of great stories about people that, that she's been around. Uh, none of them would be about Lucas, I'm sure. So uh, I've told you before in high school, I worked at a grocery store and I've shown you this picture before. Uh, it's a thrift store now but it used to be Russell Central Food. Uh, it looked a lot nicer than that when I was in high school. And uh, it was a very small grocery store, had about four aisles in it. And south of Russell's, right across 10th Street in Amarillo, is a neighborhood called Bivens. Uh, the Bivens family is a, a very, very wealthy family up in the Panhandle. And then just south of Bivens is Wolflin. And those are like the old money neighborhoods in Amarillo. It's where the big, old uh, estate homes are and the, just the old money. There's just rich, rich people. And I remember there was a guy who lived right across the street. This was the most impressive thing to me in high school ever. He would come in and he would buy groceries and he would always pay with a check. And on the top left corner of his check, all it said was Max. Just Max, M-A-X. No address, no phone number, no name, just Max. And I'm like, you got to be pretty important just to have Max up at the top of your check. At least I thought so in high school. So you got people like Max coming in, but just north of West 10th in Amarillo is government housing. It's one of the poorest neighborhoods in all of Amarillo. It's just a fascinating neighborhood. You've got old money on this side of the street, and you've got just destitute, abject poverty on the north side of the street. And up and down West 10th, there's all sorts of uh, nefarious activity. There's a lot of homeless people that live in that area. Uh, people would come into the store all the time. Some of them like Max, with more money than you can count. Some of them with their invisible friend who they're having a conversation with. And it's unnerving, it's unsettling to be around someone in an uncontrolled environment when you're fairly certain that they are genuinely crazy. I mean, a controlled environment is unsettling enough, but just to sort of be in an uncontrolled environment with another person who you don't know what to expect. You don't know what's going to come out of their mouth or what they're going to do or how they're going to act or, or what's going to happen. It's, it's unnerving. It's unsettling. And this is what I'm saying to you. David pulled it off so good in Gath that that's how everyone felt. This guy's kind of crazy. He's doodling on the walls. He's probably talking to himself, rocking himself, spitting on himself, drooling on himself. He was crazy, or so they thought. And there's an irony that when David comes to town, the people of Gath are afraid that he's going to kill them because he's a great warrior. He's killed tens of thousands of people. And then when he leaves town, he leaves, at least in part, because they're afraid 
he's going to kill him because he's crazy. This guy's going to fly off the handle, and we got to get him out of here. we got enough crazy people here already. The question is, what do you make of this act? And it was an act. What do you make of the act? Here we go. Scholars disagree about how to make sense of David's, quote-unquote, insanity in Gath. Some would argue that by acting like a madman, David displayed great humility and wisdom. Great humility and wisdom. So these scholars would say, David found himself in a really tight spot. He's on the run. Saul's trying to kill him. What are you going to do? You're going to run for your life. He's running for his life. He knew he couldn't fight his way out of Gath. And he knew that there was opposition to him being there because of his history. And he looked around and he surveyed the land and very wisely, very shrewdly said, I only have one way to get out of here, and it's not by fighting. I'm not going to sling my way out, or I'm not going to chop my way out this time. And he humbles himself, these would say, and he plays the fool. Robert Bergen describes it like this. David realized his life was at much at risk in the royal court of Gath as it was in the royal court of Gibeah. That's where Saul was, Gibeah. Consequently, he found it necessary to act with the same wisdom here that enabled him to survive Saul's court. Do you see what he's saying? It was wisdom that got him away from Saul, and it was wisdom that got him out of Gath. For the present situation, he used a different tactic. His actions also sharpened the contrast between himself and Saul. This is an interesting take. David took upon himself the trappings of insanity to hide his sanity. Saul surrounded himself with the trappings of sanity to cloak his insanity. Maybe. Maybe David just looks around and he says, okay, I'm in trouble. There's more of them than me. I can't fight out of this. And I'm going to have to humble myself, embarrass myself, but maybe there's a way out if I proceed this way. And Robert Bergen says that was wisdom. Others disagree. And they argue that by acting like a madman, David displayed great folly and cowardice. Very simply, they say he didn't trust God to get him out of this situation. He made a fool of himself and he made a fool of Yahweh. Alan Redpath is of this persuasion. He says, what a tragic picture. What an undignified moment in the life of a man who had been anointed by the Spirit of God. How utterly unworthy of his calling was this behavior. What dishonor to bring upon the name of of his God. Lakato says it like this David panics. We'd like to hear a prayer to his shepherd. We'd appreciate a pronouncement of God's strength. Don't hold your breath. David doesn't see God, he sees trouble, so he takes matters into his own hands. Folly and cowardice. When you're a preacher or a teacher and you come to difficult texts in the Bible, Part of your job is to sort of wade through it, sort through it, think through it, stand up in front of people and say, this is what it means. This is what it says. This is where we need to come down on this side of the issue, and here's why. I'm just going to tell you I'm not exactly sure. These are really smart people. Completely disagree about how David approached this. So I think one thing we can do is we can step back and think, are there any other stories in the Bible that sound like this story. And there's at least one in the Old Testament that I can think of. And it's the story of Elijah and Ahab 
and Jezebel. Remember this story, 1 Kings 18 and 19? Elijah comes out of hiding. He has prayed for this drought and this famine, and it's been going on for a long time. He finally comes out of hiding, and he's going to have this confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And you remember the great story of the, the prophets trying to call down fire, and nothing happens. No one listens. There's no one paying attention. And Elijah calls down the fire of God on this altar, and it burns it all up. And they know that Yahweh is the true God, not Baal, not Asherah. And then you remember the part, I hope you remember the part, where he takes the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah down to the creek and he slaughters them. He slaughters them, hundreds of them. And then you remember the part of the story where he prays. Hasn't rained in a long time, now I'm going to pray. And they wait and they wait and finally a cloud starts coming on the horizon and rain breaks loose. And you think, wow. Prayed that the rain would stop. You called down fire from heaven. You slaughtered hundreds of false prophets. You prayed that the rain would come. He runs in front of Ahab's chariot, empowered by the Spirit of God. And then what happens next? Do you remember? Jezebel finds out about it. And Jezebel says, my paraphrase, I'm going to kill him inside of 24 hours. Today I will kill Elijah. And if you're reading the story and you don't know what's coming next, you just expect Elijah to say, bring it on, woman. Let's go. You better bring an army. That's what my dad used to always tell me. You better bring an army if you're coming. Like, come on. Scared of Jezebel? He just killed 850. He's just, I know God did it, but he's praying and controlling the weather. And instead, he has a complete meltdown, a total breakdown. It's a pity party. He's throwing a temper tantrum. He's running scared. He asks that God would kill him. God, just kill me. If this, if this is where I'm at, just kill me. Go ahead and put me out of my misery. What's happening in Elijah's life in that moment? Well, he's literally running for his life. I imagine he's tired and I imagine he's hungry, and when you put those together, you get hangry, right? Let me tell you about a time that I experienced that. <laughs> Toronto, uh, two years ago, three years ago, something like that. And uh, we were about halfway through the trip, and uh, irritable, dramatic, hungry, Another irritable and up top a confused. You're going to take a picture of that and show Crystal? Yeah, that's good. You've experienced that. Maybe some of that's going on in Elijah's life. Another thing going on in Elijah's life in this moment is that he is too focused on Elijah. And one of the things he keeps saying, there's even a clue before the big confrontation with the prophets of Baal, but he says it repeatedly, I'm the only one left. Just me, I'm the only one left. He's not the only one left. There's a man named Obadiah who has hid a hundred prophets in two different caves. He's not the only one left. There's at least a hundred others. And all Elijah can do is walk around, mope around, navel-gazing, looking at himself, thinking about himself, saying, well, I'm the only one left. And he's so focused on Elijah, he can't see the big picture. What are the parallels with David? Well, I imagine David is tired. 
He's running for his life. We know that when he showed up in Nob, he was begging for food. And I showed you a picture of what that bread looked like last week. That wasn't a gourmet meal. Like that was just to tide you over, get a few calories in your belly. So he's hungry, he's tired, he's on the run. But there's biblical evidence that David isn't just focused on David in this moment. He's actually focused on God. And that may be surprising when you think about David and what he's doing. He is actually focused on God. And you see that in the book of Psalms. Our perspective on David's actions must be shaped by Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. And I'll just give you both of these and we'll look over and and note a few things in each of these Psalms. Psalm 56 is an expression of faith in the midst of fear. And we'll look at the title and see how it fits with this story. It's faith in the midst of fear. Psalm 34 is an expression of thanksgiving for deliverance. Thanksgiving for deliverance. So if you want to, you can hold your spot. You can flip over to the book of Psalms. You can start with Psalm 56. And you'll note at Psalm 56, up at the top, there is a note. And the note says, to the choir master. In other words, you're going to sing this when you're all together. According to the dove on the far off terebinths. That doesn't mean anything to us, but it's a musical note. You sing it to this tune. A mictum of David, a song of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. He shows up in Gath and all the men of Philistia say, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Achish, this is the king of Israel. Why are you letting him in? This is the guy who killed tens of thousands of our countrymen. Why are you letting this guy in? And David writes, This psalm. Let's just read it. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, remember David, when he hears the men of Philistia talking to Achish, he's afraid. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps, they've waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples. O God, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid, what can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God, I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I might walk before God in the light of life. You see something similar in Psalm 34, if you just flip over to the left, Psalm 34, the note here says it's of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Achish Abimelech, same guy, says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And you can read the rest of it. Here's where I come down. David's afraid. And at the same time, he's trusting God. Have you ever had an experience like that? I think that's most of us. I mean, he's terrified. He's afraid of what they might do to him. And yet, he also is wrestling and struggling with this desire to trust the Lord and have confidence in his promises. I don't think that it's very becoming of an anointed king, someone who is bearing the Holy Spirit, to drool on himself in the presence of the Philistines. I don't think it reflects well on David. I don't think it reflects well on Yahweh. Uh, I don't think the whole act is, is something that you commend David for. But my guess is, if you are honest, that you've had an experience like this where you said, man, I, I was in a really tough spot. I was terrified. I, I was confused. And, and I was praying and I was talking to God through it, but maybe in hindsight you look back on that scenario and you say, yeah, I still made some really bad decisions. I was trying to seek the Lord and trust the Lord and be a person of faith, but I just kind of stumbled through that thing and God was with me despite my foolishness. And I think that's David in this story. I think he's terrified. I think he's trying to trust the Lord. I think he makes a stupid decision, a foolish decision. And I think God blesses him in spite of himself. And he protects him from his enemies. And so the final question is this. Why would God put David in that situation in the first place? And why is that story in the Bible? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire this story the way it's inspired to be in the Scriptures? Let me give you three thoughts. Number one, I think the story reminds us that God wasn't just interested in David the king. God was ultimately interested in David's character. You remember what God told Samuel and Saul? I'm done with you, and I'm looking for a man to be king who would be a man after my own heart. I need somebody who will trust me and love me and fear me and follow me. I need somebody who is a, a person of integrity, a person of character. How do you become that kind of person? You become that kind of person by everything always going your way? Do you become that person by everything always being easy? My guess is in your life, you can look back and some of the hardest moments in your life have been times where hopefully you grew in your character, in your integrity, in your faith, in your trust. I mean, how are you going to learn to trust the Lord unless you're in a situation where you really, really need Him to come through in some way, shape, or form? And God puts David in exactly that kind of situation. Redpath, I think, is helpful. He says, he, David, was going through this situation not because of any failure or sin that he committed, but simply because of God's purpose in proving the reality of his love, his devotion, his faith. 
This crucible of testing was to prepare David for a throne for which he had already been chosen. It takes but a moment to make a convert. It takes a lifetime to manufacture a saint. And God is not just interested in, David, I want you to be the king and sit on the throne. He also wants David to be thoroughly a man after his own heart. And so he puts him in a tight spot. He allows him to be in a difficult situation and he allows him to stumble through it. But David stumbles through it and at least he stumbles through it unlike Saul with his eyes on the Lord. And he comes out the other side saying, God delivered me. Now he doesn't mention the fact in the Psalms, he delivered me and I acted like a fool. But he looks back and he says, God is the one who delivered me. I didn't get myself out of that mess. God got me out of that mess. Second, I think the story is intentionally ambiguous about David's insanity so that we put ourselves in David's shoes and examine our motives or examine our hearts. How easy would it have been for the author of this book to include a little note that says, David draws on the wall, he lets the spittle run down his beard, and the Lord was angry with David. Could have just added that detail in. It would have made it clear. It would have cut out half my message tonight. Could have put a little detail in that said the opposite. David uh, drew on the walls and he let the spit run down his beard. And that was one of the smartest things David ever did. And we would have said, well, you know, thumbs down, thumbs up. We would have known. But instead, this is what we get. And it's not an accident. It's not an accident. The author says, this is what happened. And you and I read it, and we're supposed to wrestle with it. You're supposed to look at it and say, oh, that's strange. Why did he do that? Why didn't he approach it differently? And as you wrestle with the, the why questions, hopefully you begin to say, well, what would I have done in a situation like that? Would I have played the madman and the fool, or would I have just bowed up to the king like I bowed up to Goliath? Like, how would I have responded in that situation? And the ambiguity of it causes us to put ourselves into the story and to wrestle with our hearts and to wrestle with our faith and to wrestle with situations in our lives where you say, look, I'm in a situation. I don't see a great way out. I don't understand why God put me here. Am I going to be a person of faith in this situation? Yes or no? Or am I going to try to take matters into my own hands and fix it myself? Causes us to examine our hearts, examine our motives. One last thought, and this is a big one. The story about David's insanity provides a contrast to the son of David, capital S, son of David, who refused to be afraid in the midst of his enemies. And I agree with Redpath. There's a, there's a contrast between David and Saul here. Saul, we know, has lost his mind at this point in the story, and he's trying very hard to make everyone think he's got it together. And David is in his right mind, and he's trying very hard to make sure that everyone thinks he's crazy. But the bigger contrast is not just David and Saul. The bigger contrast is David and Jesus. So take your Bible very quickly. Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 18. And I just want you to notice the contrast. John 18. Verse 1 to 11. Scripture says that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. 
Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing, underline that word, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And I hope you can note and see the the comparison and the contrast. David finds himself in the midst of his enemies. He knows he cannot fight his way out of this one. He's terrified and he decides to lie and to act like a fool. The son of David finds himself in the midst of his enemies. And whereas David thought they might try to kill him, Jesus knew what they were there to do. He knew. There was not any question. There was not, this is not looking good. He knew all that was about to take place. And he knows, like David, he's not going to fight his way out of this one. He tells Simon to put his sword away. But rather than act like a fool, he presses on in obedience and trust and faith. And he does what the Father has set out for him to do. He says, I will drink the cup that the Father has given me. And you note the contrast between the stories. And over and over again, you see this in David's life. David was not the one that God's people needed. In many ways, he points us forward to the one we needed. But he was not the one. We don't need a man who in a moment of crisis comes, caves and acts like a fool and drools on himself and scribbles on the wall. We need the man who will stand up when the men come to arrest him and kill him, who will stand up and say, I'm the one you're looking for. Let these men go. He's thinking about the sheep. Let these men go. I will drink the cup that the Father has given me. And he goes to the cross, not thinking he might die, but knowing he will die. Jesus, the son of David.